Well, last week we began our nine-week study of the Lord's Prayer, and we call it the Lord's Prayer because it's the Lord who taught the disciples this prayer to pray when they asked him in Luke 11, teach us how to pray, Jesus. And he says, when you pray, say this. And last week we noted that Jesus, again, not only says pray this in Matthew's gospel, he actually in Luke's gospel says say this, meaning say these words, pray these words. In other words, Jesus gives us these words verbatim to pray. This is not just how we pray, although it is, it's a good model of how we can pray, and that's what we're learning about here, um, is how our prayer life can be formed, but these are the words that, that God gives us to pray to God. And so clearly it would behoove us, I think, as Christians to know this prayer by heart. Now that said, we also talked about last week how there's a difference between reciting a formula of words and actually praying them with intent. Because right before we get into the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus warns us away from both boastful and intellectually showy prayers on the one side and then wild and emotionally frenzied prayers on the other. It is good to memorize this prayer, especially for when our own personal words fail, but whether we're Jewish or Gentile, whether we're going to a traditional church or a contemporary church, um, whatever life circumstances may be, our prayers aren't supposed to be about getting others' attention, and it's actually not even about trying to conjure up God's attention because God has already given us his full and undivided attention. We don't need to use just the right magic formula to get him to pay attention. He's already freely giving that attention. In fact, last week I borrowed this phrase from Wes Hill when he says, God, before we even open our mouths, we find is already stooping low to the ground and cupping his ear, already listening to us before we even open our mouths to pray. He's ready and willing to listen and to answer. So when we pray, Jesus tells us to pray simply, to pray honestly, and of course to pray humbly. And all of these things we see embodied fully in the Lord's Prayer. And we also discussed last week how we can break this prayer up, and this is how we're going to be doing it in our study, into an invocation where we invoke God's name, seven different petitions, and then finally a doxology. So last week, we learned what it means to uh, to call on God as our Father. And then this week, and for the next two weeks, we'll be discussing these first three petitions about us learning how we might worship God well. That's where we start in prayer, is by worshiping God. And in the final four petitions, we learn how to pray for one another, how we pray for the church. And before we end, of course, we finally praise the Lord for who he is, and what he's done and what we know he will do. And so last week we covered the invocation, Our Father who art in heaven. And we really discussed two big portions of that. Who is God? Well, Jesus tells us he's the Father, because first and foremost, he's the eternal Father of Jesus, who is the eternally begotten Son. And because we're invited into God's life, not through anything we do, but through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus by faith, we too then get to call God our Father by Jesus alone. So that's who God is. The Father of Jesus, the Son, is now our Father because we're in Jesus too. 
So that's who God is. But then we also say, our Father, who art in heaven. Now, where is God? God is in heaven. Now, what is heaven? That is, in some sense, hard for us to wrap our minds around, because heaven is not really a place like we think of places. It's not some, um, you know, uh, just big, empty, open, white, cloudless space on the other side of the wall of this universe. But heaven is where God is God, fully in his glory and his holiness and his grace, and where God is God, completely unmarred by the ravages of sin and death. When God created the world and he put Adam and Eve in it, in the garden, God lived with him there, and heaven was on earth, quite literally, because God was there. That's where God was living. He walked with man and with woman. So remember, heaven isn't some faraway cosmic place. Heaven is simply the reality of wherever God is fully. And that emanates from God's being. Remember also, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, uh, heaven isn't a thing that contains God. God is the thing that emanates heaven from his own being. Wherever God is, that's where we find heaven. And so this is the God that we're praying to. The God that Jesus welcomes us, even us, all these centuries later to invoke. So now that we've spoken to this God, now that we've invoked him by his name, his identity, where he is, who he is, what is the first question that we'll ask him? What's the first petition? We say, our Father who art in heaven, the first thing we ask him is, hallowed be thy name. That's the first request. So what does that mean? Well, let's get into that tonight. Matthew 6, 9b, hallowed. Be thy name. Now, in the ancient Near East, which is, you know, Jerusalem and Israel and Syria and Lebanon, all those places in the Middle East, right next to the Mediterranean, the ancient Near East, children were named, not after some rich relative they had. They weren't named based on how their initials would look in a monogram. And they weren't named by just seeing what kind of crazy and unique name unique sounding name that the the parents had come up with. It wasn't a clever, it wasn't a a contest of cleverness. No, rather, instead, people were named based on some character trait that their family hoped that they would embody when they grew up. So children were named in accordance with the hope that they would be like the, that they their character would reflect their name, that they would, in their personality, embody the virtue that they're named after. That's how people were named in the ancient world. But you know how that goes as parents. Maybe you even actually name some of your kids that way, hoping they would embody the meaning of this name. But you can name someone Faith and only find out that they grew up to be a doubter. Or you can name somebody Charity and find out that she's the stingiest person that you've ever known, doesn't like to share her toys or anything. So sometimes names, in fact, probably often, names don't reflect the person's character. But sometimes we find in the Bible, too, if a person goes through a crisis of some kind, their name is changed to reflect what they've experienced or how they've been changed. So think of, for instance, Jacob that we just read of Genesis uh, a few months ago. Jacob, his name means heel grabber. 
because he literally comes out of the, the womb grabbing onto his brother's heel. But symbolically, that would represent how Jacob would live his life constantly trying to grab somebody else and pull them down so he could get ahead. So Jacob sadly very clearly came to embody that name, somebody who was always trying to get the upper hand on someone else. And this is despite the fact that God promised him and promised his parents even that he would be prominent in the family, that God would bless and love Jacob. That was before he was even born. And yet Jacob spends his whole life trying to get ahead by his own way. And he doesn't quite learn his lesson about this until after he schemes and you know, gets in Esau's way and takes his, his blessing and his birthright and he's afraid Esau, a big um, uh, hairy hunter of a man is just going to kill him one day. So he goes out on the run and one day he's down by the river Jabbok and he's asleep and he in, in encounters this stranger that wants to wrestle with him and he finds out in the course of this wrestling, he's wrestling with God Almighty. And he's, he's grappling with him, trying to get the upper hand on God. He's grabbing his heels too. And, it, and it's not until the Lord punches him so hard. We're, I think we're meant to know that God not only punches, how do you dislocate somebody's hip by punching it inward? You don't punch it inward, you punch it outward. In other words, God is, is punching Jacob even in the groin, in the, in the center of his being, the, the, the way by which he's trying to manipulate in the world. And he hits him so hard, his hip explodes out of socket. And he goes throughout the rest of his life with a limp, has no more children after that. And after this, the Lord renames him Israel which isn't really, in some sense, much of a better name because it means struggles with God. Because despite God's promises of grace, he wrestles with God all of his life. But that big event, his name has changed. His identity isn't about getting ahead, but his, his identity now is someone that wrestles with God. And God says, you've overcome, you've, you've won in this victory, but not without it being really costly. So that's an, that's a, that's a, Great example of how names have to do with character. Or, or last year, I think it was last year when we went through Ruth. Or yeah, it was back in uh, in Advent where we went through Ruth. You remember Naomi, one of the main characters of the story. Her name means sweet and fragrant, and yet she goes through life with a stench of death hanging over her, because first her family goes bankrupt from a famine and. And, and they become unwelcome immigrants in a neighboring country that is, they don't already get along with this country. Moab is an enemy of Israel. And then on top of that, her, her husband and her two adult sons die. And so Naomi is left alone with these two pagan daughters-in-law who probably don't speak the, the, the same language as her, um, at least not their, their mother tongue. And she barely, barely makes it back to her hometown with no prospects of employment or protection, and her face and her feet and are covered in mud and sweat and tears. And, and she changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter, because she sees her life has become so bitter that when the women of the town see her after a decade, they go, is, is this Naomi? Is, is this the sweet and fragrant one who's sweating like a pack mule and, and is dirty? And she says, no, you can call me Mara now. We know that that story ultimately turns out good for her, where she takes the name Naomi again. But you can see how even in their self-understanding, people change their names to reflect 
their spiritual situation. But there's also positive examples. When we go to the New Testament, we see Jesus first meets one of his disciples, a man named Cephas. Cephas is not a fellow to be trusted. He's kind of a shifty, sandy guy and, and, and not somebody that's um, uh, very thoughtful, I guess you could say. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. But despite that being who Cephas is, Jesus sees something in Cephas that nobody else can seem to see. And so he renames him Petros, or Peter, as we call in English, or a nickname that would be applicable as Rocky. His name's Rocky now. Because he'll somehow, by God's grace, become a pillar and a foundation in the life of the church. He'll go from being this brash, wild man to an apostolic father that's filled with patience and wisdom and writes these wonderful books in the New Testament. And we read, too, that it's on his confession that Jesus plans to build his church. So sometimes God even sees characters that seem unsavory and gives them a different identity and they live into that identity. So that should give us a glimpse of how names should function with regular people in the Bible. Names are uh, indicative of a person's character, who they were, who they are, who they might become. And it's in that context and with that knowledge in mind that we pray that God's name, his character, his, his being, be hallowed is the word we read. That is that it might be honored or cherished or made significant. But this is key here. We have to understand this part. We're not praying that God's virtues or his character be changed in any way to reflect who he really is, to reflect his holiness or his sacredness. No, God is always who he is. He's, he's unchangeable from eternity past on to eternity future. God will always be God with no change. So we're not praying that God's uh, his name or his character becomes more holy than it already is. What we're praying instead when we say, Hallowed be thy name is not what God would experience, but what we would experience of God. So we're praying that when we say, hallowed be your name, what we're really praying is that God to us would truly be who he is, that God would be God to us. Or as Haddon Robinson so neatly said, we're asking that God would be God to us, not that we're trying to whittle him down to size or we're trying to manipulate him in the way we live or by the way we pray that God would simply be God to us. That's what we mean when we say, hallowed be your name. We're praying that we might be changed to trust God and obey his character. Not that God would be changed. This is something I think we've just kind of spent some extensive time talking about on Sunday morning as we've journeyed through the first part of Exodus or in the process of doing that. When God shows up to the outcast Moses, You remember in the burning bush, he tells him to remove his sandals and be aware because he's standing on holy ground now. And he tells him that his name is Yahweh. The Lord is the way we render that in English. It means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. What what kind of name is that, though? I am who I am. Joseph Ratzinger comments paradoxically, God, when he reveals himself to Moses, he gives him a name that's also kind of a non-name. It's a name, yes, it's an identity, but it's not really a name at the same time. 
In other words, when God invites human beings to call him by his name, it's a name that we can't fully understand or comprehend or exhaust. God's character is eternal and transcendent. God is not like the other gods. He's not like Zeus. He's not like any of the the old ancient gods. He's not Jupiter. He's not like us mere mortals. God is who God is, whether we comply with that or not. And so he tells Moses, this will be my name forever. I am who I am will always be my name. That will always be my character. There is no change for me. This is how I will also be remembered in every generation. God is seeming to say to Moses that I am free to be who I will. If you want to know God's character, it's simply that I exist, what God seems to say to us. I am who I am. And that's totally unlike any human being. We become, R.C. Sproul cleverly said, God is really the only being to ever exist. He's just the, he's, he just is. He is the being. We're becomings, human becomings, because we're born and we grow and we learn and we change and we get good at things and we're not good at other things and, and then we shrivel away and we die. We become something else. We're always changing and, and even if our life seems mundane and the same, we're always, we're getting older at least and we're, our, our hair color is changing and we're not, We're not moving around as good as we are. Even if nothing cataclysmic is happening, we're slowly decaying away. We're becoming something else. Becoming nothing. We're becoming dust. But we're not really being. God is the only one who is a being. But here's the wonderful thing. This seems so aloof. God being just existence itself is is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But the wonderful thing about God's character and his name and how we understand it is that he freely and graciously reveals it to us to experience. God tells us I am who I am so that we might know who he is. Remember, God is God with or without us. He doesn't need us. The the, the depiction sometimes that God created humanity because he was lonely. No, God is a community within God's self, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally happy and content within God's self. He doesn't need human beings. God doesn't need our support. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our company. He doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need anything else. It's God who chooses to so freely give us our existence. He doesn't need us. But this is the staggering truth. God, who is totally sovereign and free, chooses in and of his own free volition not to exist as God without us in the picture. God chooses for us to be in the great plan of redemption. And that's what he's chosen. And that's a part of his character, that he's so loving and so gracious that he includes broken, messed up, marred people like us in his process of salvation and one day ruling and reigning over everything. God the immutable, God the omnipotent, God the all-wise freely covenants with Israel. Freely covenants with the people who are named the strugglers with God. That's who Israel is. And if you're far enough in your Bible reading plan, finishing up with Joshua and Judges, you see all Israel ever does is struggle with God. It's so clear what he wants from them. Worship and obedience and things will go well. Life will be abundant for them. And they're always struggling against him. But yet God's character, what it means when he says, I am who I am, 
It means he's the kind of God that covenants with people that struggle with him. That he's faithful and gracious to hypocrites and to people that are as corrupt as can be. That's the kind of God he is. And yet, tragically, when we pray, perhaps we discover that in reality there are other names that we respect and cherish more than God's name. That there are other names that we, the, uh, we appreciate more. Friends or family, people that we look up to more, their opinions matter to us more. And sometimes, too, when we pray, perhaps we, we find that there are other names that we fear more than His. Perhaps there's names of political leaders um, here in this country or abroad that, that seem larger, to li- larger than life to us. People that seem uh, that, that they're deserving of our re- respect and reverence in a way. Perhaps we find that is the reality within us. But still, God is intent that his name not be misunderstood. Although God covenants with Israel, again, a people who struggle and resist God despite all of his love and blessings for them, they so often incur his judgment because they do struggle, because they do disobey and disbelieve. They're unjust and idolatrous. And God would have every right, according to his name and his character, to break covenant with Israel, to annihilate them from the the face of the planet. And yet, although that's the kind of people that God is dealing with, people that are always scheming and plotting and planning and betraying and deceiving. That's all he has to work with. And yet we still read God say in Isaiah 48, I will delay my anger, even his righteous anger, for the sake of my name. I'll restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise so that you will not be destroyed. Part of God's name, his character, shows us that he is patient and good even with sinners. Despite the rampant sin in our world and the rampant sin within us, he says, I will act for my own sake, indeed, my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. Part of God's glory, then, we see is that he is forbearing and patient with us. For the sake of his name, he relents against Israel and us and judgment and punishment. And the great blessing of God's cherishing his own name, of revering his own name and character, is that through the Israel that he spares, who unwittingly, they're the ones that unwittingly give the world Jesus. The Israel that he relents disaster from are the ones that in turn bring the greatest name ever into the world. The unknowable God made known. The uncreated creator now living alive with his creation. Through Christ, we can know and cherish, adore and fellowship with the hallowed name. We can experience God's divine character, his sacred being in a human person named Jesus Christ. The father who says he'll not share his glory with another in a mysterious move confirms that Jesus, the son, is one with him, and he shares his glory with that Jesus. So that tells us that whoever this Jesus is, he's truly one with the Father. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, everywhere, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's his name, to the glory of God the Father. Now, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, this hallowed name of Lord, whatever, whatever that means, I am who I am, that we call the Father, we can also now see so clearly that we can call that name, we can call Jesus by that name, Lord. I'll never forget, I was sitting in a class uh, in seminary, and, uh, and one of my, a brilliant fellow student of mine, um, our professor was saying something about Yahweh, God's name, and was saying something about Christ, and it, it like a light went on in him and me at the same time. But he was the one that was brave enough to ask a question. He said, so, is, so Jesus is Yahweh. So that's, because when we, when we think of, when I think sometimes, at least of seeing that name Yahweh, the Lord in the Old Testament, I'm thinking the Father. I think that's who that is. But no, what, what's clear from the New Testament is that the Yahweh that we read about, the Yahweh that was, has been uh, unleashing plagues on Egypt for their evil, that's been delivering Israel, that Yahweh is one and the same with Jesus. Jesus is the human face and form of Yahweh. And that was mind-blowing to me. And so when we call Jesus Lord, we're calling him too by his hallowed name. And moreover, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us, now the Lord, that same name, is also the Spirit. The same Spirit that wrote the book of Exodus. The same Spirit that, that breathed life into creation. That breathed spiritual life into us when we understood the gospel. He is Lord too. And the name that God revealed to Moses, Yahweh, the Lord, is the same name, Wes Hill says, that God handed over to Jesus as a crowning honor after Christ's shameful death and resurrection. And it's also the name of the Spirit at work in our churches, in the world, even today. And so when we pray for the name of the Lord to be hallowed, when we're praying that the Father's name is hallowed, we're also praying that God, not only Father, but Son and Spirit, would simply be the God that the Father, Son, and Spirit is to and for us. That God, that this God, in all the mystery and wonder, all the glory and sovereignty, all the mercy and grace, would indeed make us blessed recipients of everything He is, just by being our God and by making us His people. When we say, hallowed be your name, we're asking that God be our God and that we be His people. So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, what's really going on is asking, God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on who you are. Help us to to experience the reality of you being God. And when we speak to God, that's why when we, in this Lord's Prayer, when we speak to God, the first and, and, and foremost thing that we speak about is, is God's benevolence and fatherhood to us. We speak to God first and foremost about God being God. So when we pray, I think it behoove us then, when we pray not to launch into Lord, I mean, this is, you know, it's appropriate to pray, Lord, help me. That's a good prayer. But when we have time to sit and pray, the first thing we should do is pray 
and ask that we experience and know and trust and believe that God, that, that we would experience and, and understand the God we read about in the Bible. To speak to the Father about the Father, first and foremost. And then after we've done that, then we then ask him to help the rest of the family. You know, this is such a, a, a shocking thing that even people that weren't particularly close to the church on, on, on contemplating um, the Lord's Prayer found a lot of power in it. So I think of the 20th century French philosopher Simone Weil, who was kind of a, 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 um, a political philosopher and, and, and later in life had some, some interesting theological developments, kind of a controversial character. Even she noted that when we ask God to hallow his name, we are asking for something that exists eternally. We're not asking for something new or, or remarkable to take place. We are simply asking that we can experience what already is, what sin cuts us off from, with full and complete reality, so that we can neither increase nor diminish it, even by an infinitesimal fraction. So when we are praying, hallowed be your name, we're really saying, God, no matter what, no matter the distractions we have in this life, no matter how we, we doubt, no matter how we get discouraged, be God to us so that we might be your people. You know, last week I, I concluded with a, a poem from the British pastor poet about our Father who art in heaven, and this week I, I'd like to do the same thing. Um, this just captures, I think, the otherworldly mystery of that phrase, hallowed be thy name, in the second of seven sonnets about the Lord's Prayer that Malcolm Geit writes. And so he writes this. He says, there's something in the sound of the word hallow, a haunting sense of everything we've lost amidst the trite, the trivial, the shallow, where nothing lingers and nothing seems to last. But hallowed summons up our fear and wonder and summons us to stand on holy ground, to sense the mystery that stands just under familiar things that we'll never understand. Hallowed be thy name, the name unspoken, the name from which all other names arise, the name that heals the sick and binds the broken, whose living glory calls the dead to rise. You make this prayer my rising and my rest, that I might bless the name by which I'm blessed. And so, Christians, to the Father in Jesus' name, and with the Spirit's power, we are now bold to all pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen.